Let's pray. Father, in this psalm that you've given us this morning, David declares that all nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. To think about what we have been singing and what we've just heard reminds us that you are holy, set apart. There is no one like you. And Father, we're grateful that we can enter into this sanctuary to be reminded of that, to taste something of what one day we will know in full, already but not yet. And we're so honored, God, that you would call us your own, and that you would show us mercy daily, new mercies made new daily. God Almighty, I pray that you would bless us now as we turn to your word, that we would hear this prayer of King David, and that we would be inspired and encouraged to see ourselves as you see us, and to see ourselves as we really are, and one day will be. God, bring encouragement to all who are here and all who are watching and worshiping online. Wherever they are in the world, Lord, we thank you for that technology. Lord, we pray that as we open this text that we would be fed deeply, made different. God, only you can do that. I pray you would. For your glory's sake, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Also note that during this time, we're not going to be passing the offering plate. If you brought your offering, there are boxes outside the doors. You can leave it there. Certainly, you can give online. The psalm that we are looking at, Psalm 86, is a prayer of David. And it's not unusual to be in the psalms and come across a prayer of David. But it is in this book, book three of the psalms. It's the only prayer of David in that part of the psalms. It's 17 verses a prayer prayed by a man who killed the giant, killed animals, shepherded a flock, committed adultery, had the woman's husband murdered. And his prayer, according to God's will, is included for us even today. As I read this prayer, I want you to listen. Listen to how many things David asked for. Listen for how he describes his relationship to God. Listen to how he describes the character of God. Listen to the way in which he describes his condition. Psalm 86, beginning at verse 1 through verse 17. I incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. 
Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Earlier this week, I was reading through, as I do most days, Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening. A few days ago, he said this about David. It wasn't particular to this psalm, just about David. He said, among all the saints whose lives are recorded in holy writ, David possesses an experience of the most striking, varied, and instructive character. In his history, we meet with trials and temptations not to be discovered as a whole and other saints of ancient times. Whatever our frame of mind, whether ecstasy or depression, David has exactly described our emotions. Whatever our frame of mind, whether ecstasy or depression, David has exactly described our emotions. What God put in his word is amazing. In the Psalms, there's not an emotion known to man that we can't relate to. Sometimes we really do experience ecstasy. And each day with Jesus seems to be sweeter than the day before. But then there are other times when that's not our story. In those times, we have to do what the Puritans said to do, pray until you pray. The passion's not there. The zeal is gone. David writes this psalm. The way I would like to approach it this morning is first, I would like to just give a sweeping overview of what's happening here. And then I want to look at two parts particularly. First, David describes his situation. I'm going to move fast here. I hope you'll take this prayer home. And as I, as I highlight the things in it, I want you to think about your own prayers. The prayers you pray individually, the prayers you pray with other, and, and match them to see if they're somewhat similar to what David is saying. I'm going to move fast. So listen carefully. Mark your Bible. Mark the bulletin. David's situation. He says in verse 1, I'm poor and needy. Verse three, I cry to you all day. Verse seven, I am in trouble. Verse 14, arrogant men have risen against me, ruthless, godless. They seek my life. That's David's situation. That's how he's describing it. Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel poor? Do you feel needy? Do you feel like there's people that have risen up against you, ruthless, evil? All around the world, we see it happening now. And we know it happens outside the church and inside the church, outside of us and inside of us. David is experiencing real trouble from people, and this isn't his first time, who really want to seek his life. David describes his relationship with God. I wonder how often as you pray, you describe your relationship with God. This is important because it's one of the reasons why we can take God at his word. One of the reasons we can say, because I am your son, I'm asking you, savior, redeemer, friend, father, these things. David describes his relationship with God. I am godly, verse 2. 
I am your servant, verse 2. I trust in you, verse 2. You are my God, verse 2. I cry and you answer me, verse 7. You love me, verse 13. You delivered me, verse 13. I am your son, verse 16. You have helped me and comforted me, verse 17. Then he moves to describing God's character. 17 things he says in 17 verses. Listen to this. God, you're good, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Remember that when it's going to be repeated. You answer me. There's none like you in your character and your works. Your name is glorified. You are great. You do wondrous things. You alone are God. Great is your steadfast love. There it is again. Toward me, you deliver me. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness the third time. You have helped me. You have comforted me. Does this sound like your prayer? Are you describing God's character as you pray to him? Are you describing your relationship with him? Are you being honest about your need? Finally, David offers his petitions. There are 15 things David asks the Lord for. Listen as I read them. Verse 1, incline your ear and answer me. Preserve my life. Save your servant. Verse 2. Be gracious to me, verse 3. Gladden my soul, verse 4. Give ear. Listen, verse 6. Teach me your way, verse 11. Unite my heart, verse 11. Turn to me, verse 16. Be gracious to me. Give strength. Save me, all in verse 16. And then lastly, show me a sign of your favor, verse 17. This morning, I want to focus on two petitions, not because they're necessarily more important than the others. They're all important. But I think they say something important for us today. And these are the petitions that are found in verse 4 and verse 11. Verse 4, here's his petition. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. In this church, if you're new to this church, you will hear us use something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in that system of doctrine, there's a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. The shorter catechism has questions and answers, just like the larger catechism, really designed for children. The very first question in the shorter catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And children respond, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Children, how many of you have heard that before? Raise your hands. Now, children of all ages. Now, the reason I say that is because it's not something we ever graduate from. It's not a pithy statement that our children learn. It actually should be the very thing that frames your day and every part of your day. When you wake up, you wake up with the chief end of your life to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. When you enter into a conversation with someone, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you discipline a child, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you confess your sins because you've wronged somebody in word or deed, you do so for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. When you balance your bank statement, you do so to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you seek a relationship with someone and it's moving towards marriage, 
The purpose of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you fight for a marriage that is not going well, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you come to worship, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That statement is not something that we pat our children on the back and say, well done. It's something that goes with us for all eternity. Children, I know many of you started school this week. I want to tell you that I was first a lion. Then I was an oiler. Then in middle school, I was a brave, a scout, and a warrior. I'm sure one day those names will be changed. Then I became, in high school, a patriot. A patriot. I played football. Ninth grade for me was still junior high, but my high school team won state. 1982. 1983, I joined the Patriots and was on the football team. And I learned the fight song. I'm sure you have them. Our fight song went like this. Go fighting Patriots. Win for Putnam West. No one else can beat us when we wear the blue and gold. Fight, fight, fight. That's just the first verse. But the first time we sung it, and I learned a tradition that our team had, was on the bus returning from a game. As soon as we turned the final corner onto 23rd Street, heading towards our school, the captains of the team, one on each of the buses, would stand up and say, go, not say, sing loudly, fighting Patriots, win for Putnam West. We had just come off an undefeated season and were state champions, but not to happen this year. Our very first game, we lost by three points. The quarterback of that team was Mike Gundy, a Midwest City bomber. I think he had a mullet then too. <laughs> and we sang the song, go fighting Patriots, win for Putnam West. No one else can beat us when we wear the blue and gold. Now imagine kids, if I stood up after we sang the song and said, coach, coach, that song's wrong. We're wearing blue and gold, and we lost. So someone else can beat us. I just want to be clear. <laughs> of course I wouldn't do that. Fight songs say silly things. They're not inerrant. It is what it is. But so is the word of God. And it's not to be treated like some silly fight song that might inspire us occasionally. It's the actual word of God that is meant to be believed and taken as God's word every time, all the time. Every time, all the time. We teach our children that the chief end of man is to glorify God. In verse 12, David says, I will glorify your name forever. In verse nine, he said, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is what we've been made for. In the midst of all these petitions, David asked God for something very interesting. Many things, actually. 
But I want to focus first on why he asked for gladness. Look again with me at verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. I wonder if any of our children, any of your children, have ever said to you, upon answering, what is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and they say, how, mommy, how, daddy, do I enjoy God? What would you say? Sometimes we struggle with words like happiness, gladness, joy, delight. This morning, what I want to do is tell you that those all are beautiful words. Happiness is not a word except when it's meant to be used superficially. That doesn't matter. We as believers should be happy people happy in the right things, joyful even in suffering, set apart in the way we handle conflict and controversy. The world should be able to see right now with so much evil going on around us that we look different. And one of the ways we should look different is that we should be a person, a people who, is, who are glad, that have gladness of soul, I think it's very interesting that in this time in David's life, when he describes himself as poor and needy, and these men have gathered around him, ungodly, ruthless men, not God-fearing men, that he says, gladden the soul of your servant. Our souls need to be gladdened by a deep, deep happiness. George Mueller lived for 92 years in the 1800s. He almost lived the entire century he was born in 1805, died in 1898. Most of you know him because he was famous for his care for orphans. More than that, he was famous in the way he cared for them because he never asked for a penny. Never. He just trusted God. He served the same church for 66 years. 66 years. One flock how? 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 How could they put up with him? And how could he put up with them? After a few years in, he never took a salary. He just said, God will provide. This man had incredible faith. He started five large orphan houses and cared for 10,024 orphans. I love that it's specific because each soul matters. When he started, there were accommodations in England for only 3,600 orphans. Twice that many under the age of eight were in prison. The world has always been dark, friends, from the fall. Because of his work to those 10,024 orphans, it inspired many others. And 50 years after he started the work, there were over 100,000 orphans in England who were being cared for. So what does this have to do with gladness of the soul? I want to read something that he wrote. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. This is George Mueller, his own words. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy 
in the Lord. This word happy means deep joy, delight, trusting. Above all, see that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. Are you happy right now in the Lord? Would your children be able to say, I know how to enjoy the Lord simply by watching my mother and my father, my older siblings, my pastor? Are you truly happy in the Lord? Does happiness in the Lord expel the fragrance of your intimacy with him? If people were to eavesdrop on your conversations about what's going on in the world, in our country, in our city, in our church, would they sense that that is a soul who is happy in the Lord, glad in the Lord? My wife will occasionally ask me questions that make me really nervous to answer. Sometimes it's, do you like the dress? Does it make me look a certain way? But the most serious questions she asks me, and it's usually right when I'm about to walk out the door, Mark, are you happy? And when she asks that question, what it means is she knows I'm not. That the heaviness and the weight of the world, of shepherding a flock, of being a beloved son of the living God, has sapped something that she's able to see. That there is a joy that isn't present. That I'm actually not fulfilling the chief end of man. Are you happy, friend, today? Not in the shallow sense, but in that deep abiding sense that he is everything. Mueller said that's the most important thing. He's not the only one. He then goes on to ask the question, and it's a fair question. How? How do we get that happiness? How do we sustain that gladness? Because here's the deal, friends. This should be the ordinary reality for believers, not that which is extraordinary. This is normative for the Christian. If we truly believe what he says about who we are, if we truly believe that we have the freedom to come to him and say, I'm poor and needy. Answer me because I'm yours. Give me a sign because I'm yours. We should be amongst all people the happiest. Even in difficult circumstances. Never denying the difficulty of the circumstance. 
That's not wise or godly itself. So he asked the question, how shall we learn to enjoy God? It's the question I hope our children would ask us. You taught us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we learn to enjoy God? Here's his answer. How I obtain such an all-sufficient, soul-satisfying portion in him it shall enable us to let go the things of this world as vain and worthless in comparison. Here's my answer. This happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is what David prays for. David asked the Lord, if you want to have a glad soul, a happy soul, well, ask God for it. He says, gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. You can't go make yourself happy. You must avail yourselves of the means of grace. And the means of grace is to say, God, I'm not. Make me happy. Deliver my soul. Make you the soul satisfying reality that you are to me now. But David prays something else. Verse 11, another petition. This is what Mueller was getting at. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I'm going to read it again. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. We believe that this is the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We believe that. In fact, the second catechism question speaks to the word of God, being the answer to the first. We don't have a problem confessing we believe it. But I do think we have a huge problem in taking God at his word. And that's what Mueller speaks about in his biography. Those who write about him said he, in his own, own words, was given the gift of taking God at his word. David prays something very interesting. He doesn't simply pray, teach me your way, O Lord. He says, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. How many of us Listen to podcasts, listen to our favorite preachers, read about our favorite people, go to many Bible studies, hear the word taught, only in the next conversation to be entertaining gossip and slander against another one, to be criticizing ultimately the God who sovereignly over all sorts of things. Self-righteousness moves in quickly. Oh, how tempted, tempting it is to be a Pharisee. Friends, it's not just knowing the word. It's not just being taught the word. It is asking God to teach us the word so we might walk in his truth. How much of his truth? All of his truth. All of his truth. All of his truth where he says really hard things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David did not know the outcome of what would happen with these men who were oppressing him. He had no idea. He prays for deliverance, but in the midst of it, he says, teach me your word, your truth. 
that I may walk in it. We are an amazing moment as the church. In your lifetime, I really believe this, for most of us at least, we've never seen times like this. This is a golden opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to shine. What does the world need most from us? Richard Baxter, a Puritan, would say, our holiness. What the world needs most from us is our holiness. What Mueller would say is our souls happy in God. Now, I want to show you something, and this might offend some of you. We sometimes say things that sound right, almost biblical, almost as if you could put a, a name and a verse reference to it. Here's one of them. God is not interested in our happiness. He's interested in our holiness. Unbiblical. Stop saying it. Now, children, how many of you have a mom that has said that before? That scares you, doesn't it? Right now you're like, oh. A minister said that to me this week. The conversation moved on swiftly, but I've got to go back to him. I love him. It's not true. And here's why it's dangerous. It pits holiness against happiness. We have a savior who died so that we could be happy in him, holy in him. And when we are holy in him, we are most happy. So when we make that statement, though it sounds right, it actually causes children to think holiness. Ugh. That doesn't sound like gladness or joy. Friends, God is deeply interested in our happiness. And he's deeply interested in our holiness. And here's what's amazing. As we go and fight, and as the church, we must be engaged in the fight. This is not the season to play defense. This is the season to radiate Christ in offense. And the most radiating thing that can come from us is a soul that is happy and holy in Christ. It's really interesting that the things that you're hearing today from the word of God are eternal things. They're true things. Pray for God to make us a people who are glad that it, it radiates from us. Not in a superficial way where we're denying the pain that's around us. That's not godly but a way that says, because of who he is and who I am in him, because he covers me, I'm wearing his uniform. We will always be victorious. Make my soul happy in you. Teach me your truth that I may walk in them. Lord Jesus, our time is up this morning and 
we are going to finish by singing a wonderful anthem that reminds us of the power of our living God, you, the one we're speaking to now. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would bring your spirit's power on us truly to make us so satisfied, so glad, so happy, so joyful in you. And Lord, if that is so distant from us now that we would recognize that we just must pray until we pray, that we just continue to ask you to deliver what only you can. And then face of all sorts of chaos inside and out, we pray that we as a body of believers would be a people so happy and joyful in you that others would take note and would want to know where is it that this comes from and that we would have the privilege of saying it's not us, it is him. The one in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ, our only rock, our only savior, our only God. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen.